Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing looking at this brilliant book from the RYA, Sea Survival Handbook. There is a link in the description for you to get your own copy and read along or just have it next to the toilet where we all do our most important research. Uh, we've on to the part one, chapter two, although that's been divided down into two podcasts already, so you can search for those. This one, though, is Survival in Cold Water. Now, for those who've been kind of keeping note on uh, the podcast and on uh, YouTube, I've been away in the last couple of months and uh, we're just getting back into our schedule now. I was crossing the Atlantic and then sailed from the UK up to Iceland and from Iceland across to Newfoundland and Newfoundland back down to Canada. So I've been through some pretty cold areas. Uh, we saw water temperatures down to 8 degrees Celsius and um, that puts you, what, just over 40 Fahrenheit. And, uh, you know, being out in the middle of the ocean and considering what it might be to go into the water in a difficult circumstance, in an emergency circumstance, I was very aware that I would want to get into this chapter as soon as I could when I got back to the studio and could do a proper job of it and you've not got all sorts of crazy boat sounds in the background. That's good for some things, but I think when we're trying to learn things, we're trying to research things, it's good to keep focused and have less going on in the background than perhaps some of my on-deck reports. So um, I pulled up a couple facts here. I realized that um, about three quarters of the people that listen to this podcast are from the US. And going into this chapter, I see that the uh, author of the book, let me just grab the name, Keith Colwell, has um, given some facts here about the UK and drowning. And uh, I wanted to just flesh that out a little bit with some facts that relate to the US and uh, to the larger territory uh, where people are you know, listening to this podcast and operating. So at the beginning of this um, page 21 in the survival handbook from the RWA, it says on average over 400 people drown in the UK each year, more than, more than die in motorcycle accidents or pedestrians in road traffic accidents. That's something to just kind of have a think about for a second there. More people drowning than being involved in uh, ac motorcycle accidents or pedestrians in road traffic accidents. You think about all of the time you spend trying to drill into children how to cross the road safely and yet it's actually drowning, which is the thing, which is the, the issue. The American numbers allow me to um, break this out a little bit uh, further. And I think it's worth going through that. Uh, you know, this is a sailing podcast and we're um, looking at how exactly this relates to boats, but a lot of us have got children and this is worth uh, going through. Drowning is a leading cause of death for children in the United States. More children ages one to four die from drowning than any other cause of death except birth defects. Isn't that interesting? I remember reading the book Freakonomics and they were talking about the fact that if you live on a street where your children regularly go and play with other kids and then you find out that one of the parents has got guns in the house, um, you may start to feel like, hey, you know, I don't want to have my kid playing around there, but it's actually the backyard that has the pool in it, which is the greater risk. Uh, if you compare just statistically, like for like, the risk of children being injured by handguns versus drowning. Drowning is way ahead. Well, now we learn here it's way ahead of everything else except birth defects. This is something really to, to be aware of. For children ages 1 to 14, drowning is the second leading, co leading cause of unintentional injury uh, uh, after motor vehicle crashes. 
which as they're one to 14 years old, I feel like the parents are also kind of in control of that as well. That's two things you can do, which uh, keep children a lot safer, making sure they're safe around water and making sure they're safe in a motor vehicle. It goes through some very interesting statistics here, which then relates to, because it's a government website, it's a CDC thing from the US, looking at the fact that um, there's a, a big disparity between different ethnic backgrounds. Obviously, indigenous people um, seem to be drowning in open water, like uh, down at the beach at the side of the lake in the river at much higher rates than other people. White children seem to drown in residential swimming pools more than anybody else, and uh, black children in um, uh, public swimming pools. So maybe it gives a, a different focus to where people are running into risk relating to water. If you have a child on a boat, I think it's very clear that uh, where exactly the danger is, right? And we'll get to that in just a second. Let's continue these statistics here for a little bit. Uh, 3,960 fatal unintentional drownings, I guess unintentional. Well, intentional, I guess, would come under murder, so that's something different. But 3,960 fatal unintentional drownings, including boating-related drowning. That's including boating-related drowning. That's an average of 11 drownings deaths per day and 8,000 non-fatal drownings. That's an average of 22 non-fatal drownings per day, including, I guess, non-fatal boat drownings. So, okay, let's have a quick see. Uh, for every child who dies from drowning, another eight receive emergency department care for non-fatal. More than 40% of drownings treated in emergency departments require hospitalization because we know, and we're gonna get into that a little bit more, there's a lot of serious issues that come. If you had water in your lungs, a lot of serious issues on from the point where you get out the water and the water gets cleared from your lungs. It's not just a case of you survived well done. There's still things to be considered thereafter. Um, drowning injuries can cause brain damage and other serious outcomes, including long-term disability, absolutely. Okay, children ages one to four have the highest drowning rates. Most drownings in children one to four happen in swimming pools. Drowning can happen any time, including when children are not expected to be near water, such as when they gain unsupervised access to pools. Fatal drowning is the second leading cause of unintentional injury death behind motor vehicle crashes for ages children one to 14. Males, I guess this is where we kind of get into the, where the rubber meets the road. I think if you've got a child on a boat, any reasonable parent is gonna be hyper-focused on the child. Um, it's when we get into just mum and dad and what they're doing and grandma and granddad and all the uncles and aunties uh, they're the people that may or may not have the life jackets on let's have a see uh, males nearly 80% of people who die from drowning are male Whew. okay many factors might contribute to higher rates of drowning among males included increased exposure to the water that they're literally doing things that are more around the water lots of people out fishing in kayaks I guess maybe um, taking risk-taking behaviors as they put it here uh, and alcohol use hmm okay that fits into a lot of kind of little pigeonholes I've already got in my brain there uh, let's go down here not being so certain factors make drowning more likely not being able to swim yep many adults and children report that they can't swim or that they are weak swimmers participation in formal swimming lessons can reduce the risk of drowning Missing or ineffectual fences around the water. On a boat, that would be that the child is able to gain access, or the adult, in fact, is indeed able to separate themselves from the boat and go into the water um, or be dragged in an uncontrollable method next to the boat. Um, it's the, the next two or three, which I think are the important ones for us. Lack of close supervision. Lack of close supervision of people who are not used to being on a boat. Lack of close supervision of people that are drinking. Uh, lack of close supervision of children. 
and lack of close supervision of uh, middle-aged man, the most dangerous animal, of course, in the marine environment. Um, location, the highest risk locations for drowning vary by age. Among infants under one year old, two thirds of all drownings occur, occur in bathtubs. Oh God, as a new father with a little seven year old boy now, that absolutely petrifies me. Two thirds of all drownings occur in bathtubs. Most drownings happen in home swimming pools among children ages one to four. More than, more than half of fatal and non-fatal drownings among people 15 years and older occur in natural waters like lakes, rivers, or the oceans. Half of fatal and non-fatal drownings among people 15 years and older, of which 80% are male, occur in natural areas like lakes, rivers, or oceans, where boats are. The next one down, not wearing life jackets. Life jackets can prevent drowning during water activities, especially boating and swimming. The US Coast Guard reported 613 boated-related deaths in 2019. 79% of these deaths were drowning-related, and of those who died, from drowning, 86% were not wearing life jackets. We could say also that 80% of them are male. And it's a pretty worrying thing. I remember there's always some statistic that gets floated around, isn't it? Like X many number of them have got their flies open or something because they, they go half drunk to the back of the boat and then uh, fall, off the, fall off the back while they're having a pee. So, and I guess the last bit I'll put in here is drinking alcohol. Among adolescents and adults, alcohol use is involved in 70% of deaths associated with water recreation. So if 86% are not wearing life jackets, 79% of the deaths uh, reported by the Coast Guard are drowning related, and 70% of deaths relating to drowning are associated with alcohol use. I think we are starting to get a bit of a picture here, right? It's drunk men not wearing a life jacket, uh, are, are the most at-risk people uh, when it comes to, to drowning. So we can sort of step from there, I think, now into um, what's going on back in the RYA book. I think uh, it's silly to just kind of like read all the, the, the figures from the, U, the UK and then not realise that, um, you know, this is a big issue everywhere. When you're talking about the fact that it's the leading cause of death in children under 14 apart from motorcycle or motor car accidents is a pretty serious thing so we've talked a lot already about uh, life jackets on this podcast and the importance of them having been out in cold water and uh, on a boat that's moving at speed I think the um, the importance is uh, really been hammered home to me um, it's a similar story says the RWA book in Australia and New Zealand which recorded over 300 uh, and 150 deaths by drowning respectively and there were over 3,500 unintentional deaths by drowning in the United States of America, which we've, we've just been through. According to the World Health Organization, drowning is the third leading cause of unintentional death worldwide and accounts for 7% of all injury-related deaths. A principal factor associated with drowning is, and that's what we're on for about today, the temperature of the water. So this is where the rubber meets the road in this part one, chapter two, of the our way survival book um cold water for me uh, at a personal level is something which i have struggled with for a very long time which might not sound very much like the uh, the words of a uh, professional blah 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 sailor whatever it is but when i was young i had something called cold urtica and if you're affected by this or any of the other versions of urtica i feel for you it's very um unusual particularly the one that i had which was cold urtica which is basically, it was described to me that your body is having an allergic reaction to its own processes. So there's a chemical that's released which causes a shell core shunt when you start to get cold, 
closing down your capillaries and driving your blood volume towards the center of your body where it can help to maintain the temperature of your important organs, leaving your limbs to, you know, kind of get uh, crinkum crankum and unable to move your fingers properly and unable to run and move and all the rest of it. All the blood is drained away by the capillaries and the veins and arteries closing down and therefore, um, you know, everything in the center should allow you to maintain a little bit longer with the, the heat of the blood left there. That chemical release, for me, I was allergic to it. And between 16 and 23, if I started to get cold, where my body might start to you know, make um, goosebumps and my hair would stand up on end and all those things that happen when you start to get cold, I would actually go into something else where I would then be having a strong allergic reaction. Uh, this could show itself as welts on my skin. It could show itself as... Um, uh, swelling of my joints, but it could stretch as far as uh, becoming blind, uh, losing control of my bladder and bowels if I was like in cold water, and indeed becoming unconscious. The most low-grade uh, version of it was uh, something which I experienced through a lot of the early years that I was at sea and uh, working for Outward Bound, is that I'd go into cold water, come out, I'd be kind of swollen and red, and I'd start to feel like an absolute ringing headache, what I imagine a, um, a migraine to be. And then uh, I would go back to my accommodation, particularly when I worked at Outward Bound, and I would just feel like absolute death warmed up. Um, terrible, terrible headache. And something which, uh, you know, if you have at the beginnings of an anaphylactic reaction, one of the um, symptoms is, uh, what do they call it now? It's um, sense of doom. I don't know if you ever had this. I've, I've, I've interacted with a number of people who are having anaphylactic reactions. And rather than the classic like red face and swelling up and gripping their throat and all the rest of it, it was this overwhelming fear that something very bad was happening and that there's some, you know, they literally just fall into a heap on the floor and just going, oh, no, no, no. This, this sense of doom thing is a chemical change in your brain, which is associated with um, anaphylactic shock. And uh I would get into the edges of that where you just feel like really rotten. So this thing lasted for seven years, say 16 to 23. And a lot of my early um, kind of associations with going to sea is, is actually of being very, very tired. And that's because I was taking a lot of antihistamines because I was petrified, obviously, of going into the water. And then my survival in that cold water being limited by the fact that it's cold water. I've always been a strong swimmer. My dad was a lifeguard and taught me when I was very little. By the time I was working for Outward Bound, I had my, uh, is it called bronze medallion, the life-saving uh, qualification. I did the um, Australian surf life-saving training and became an Australian surf lifesaver with the red and yellow hats, all that kind of stuff. And yet if I went into cold water, I knew that my uh, ability to deal with that was much lower. And then as often happens with um, things that you're allergic to, this seems to go in these like seven year cycles. At 23, I came up out of it and I've never really been affected by it since. So 20 odd years and yet I still have an absolutely morbid hate of cold water. Something I'm looking to like deal with a little bit this winter just by taking cold showers. There's a thought of like, yeah, I could go down to the dock and I could break the ice and I could go in and then obviously, you know, reality comes calling and that's not going to happen. But a slightly cooler shower might be a good place to start, right? Because the consequences of falling into cold water are something which I've been teaching and learning about and, and recognizing as a, a reality of my life for 20 odd years. It's uh, absolutely petrifying what a difference the temperature can make. So let's have a look at what it says here. The sea around the British Isles is officially designated as a cold water region with water temperatures ranging from four Celsius to six Celsius during February and March and rising to 14 Celsius to 18 Celsius 
in August. To put that into perspective for those working in Fahrenheit, that's like 41 Fahrenheit up to uh, in the in the winter to 62 Fahrenheit in the summer. So that's I think for those who are happy going into cold water. I know a friend of mine, Christina Cunningham. Hello, Christina, if you listen to this, um, she does cold water swimming, and she was telling me they're going in at like three or four Celsius, which is then. I've got a little uh, conversion thing in front of me here. I can actually work that out. That's, I think that's just marked unbelievably cold, 37 Fahrenheit. But think of the difference. Like Christina goes into cold water in an emergency situation on a boat and she's in an environment that she knows mentally she can survive. I go into that water and physical processes, which I basically have no control of because I'm where I'm at with this stuff, kick in and I die way earlier. I guess that's the thing that I've started to realize now. It's not just about, you know, is it cold water or not? It's about what's my adaptation to that because this is a very key element of what's going on for me and a lot of the sailing I do. Like, you know, okay, you go in the water, there's all these clever things that may or may not happen of the boat coming back and the life rafts and the life jackets and the EPIRBs and the, you know, SARTs and AIS beacons, all the rest of it. But if I just can't stand the cold, I'll be long dead before any of it works. So yeah, okay, what else we got here? A little bit more... Uh, the mid to northern Pacific coast and the North Atlantic coast of the USA and Canada, the southern Argentinian and Chilean coasts in South America, the western shores of New Zealand, South Island and Tasmania also suffer from sub-15 Celsius sea temperatures. Although in the southern hemisphere, of course, the lowest temperatures are experienced in August. So immediately what that brings out to me, because I see the kind of um, the metrics behind this podcast, that basically everybody who's listening to this podcast <laughs> is in an area which is designated as having cold water. You know, they might have the kind of temperature of water that you can persuade your children to go in and, and, uh, and swim in. 16 Celsius is the minimum temperature for a public swimming pool in the UK and is within the range given as the summer temperatures uh, in the UK. But that area, that region is also a cold water region, technically described as a cold water region. So we're looking at something here, which is if you're listening to this, unless you're in the Caribbean or the corners of the Mediterranean or, or, or Hawaii, what have you, uh, basically this affects you. That water may well be a lot colder than, than you're realizing if you go in there in an uncontrolled fashion, not at the beach in shallow water. Okay, and the book concludes its like introductory paragraph here by saying the colder the water the stronger the effects on a human body that is suddenly immersed. While many news reports suggest that hypothermia is a main reason behind immersion deaths, in reality, most casualties without a life jacket drown before they even get close to suffering from hypothermia. However, because of the conductivity of water, hypothermia is possible in any water below 35 Celsius. 35 Celsius, good Lord. 35 Celsius is like up in the 80s, isn't it? For uh, I will do my little conversion here. 95 Fahrenheit, yeah, so basically body temperature. So of course, you can become hypothermic, below thermia, below your thermic norm, if you're in anything other than body temperature water. So given enough time, even in the, you know, the Caribbean, you could end up hypothermic, right? This finishes up, so even in relatively warm waters, absolutely, just said this, <laughs> such as the Mediterranean, which even in the summer seldom exceeds 26 degrees, a casualty will eventually become unconscious and without a life jacket, drown. Good Lord. Okay, so nobody's safe from this, really. Basically, unless you're driving around in water, which is north of, you know, body temperature, in the end, hypothermia is going to get you. But long before any of that happens, you're going to, um, you're going to drown. So 
Let's, let's learn about ways that we can avoid this. We've got it now. We're 20 minutes in. We've worked out that water is cold. Water equals bad. And we need to do something to save ourselves. What is it that we can learn here that's going to make us safer? Well, I guess the first thing is the, the length of time that you're immersed. And that's what the book goes into on this second page here. The length of time immersed. Naught to three minutes, cold water shock and diving reflex. Okay, we'll find out what that is in a second. Three to 30 minutes, swim failure. Well, I've definitely been at that point before. I can remember being in a situation in Hong Kong where I was doing some uh, kayaking. We had taken a whitewater kayak out on a sailing boat and then we'd anchored off this beach called Dailong Wan in Hong Kong, which is uh, literally big wave bay in Chinese, in Cantonese. And uh, the, the plan was to then launch the kayaks and uh, go in and do some uh, playing around on the waves in the swell. I did a lot of uh, open water kayaking at that time and, uh, and, and white water stuff and all sorts of things. And uh, I started heading in towards the uh, swell line where it was breaking and starting to become something that would be fun to play with on the kayaks. And as I got there, I realized, jeepers, these things are way bigger than they look from the seaward side, like too big to kayak in or too big for me to kayak in. And um, as I was just uh, contemplating the fact that I shouldn't go in any further, the exact moment came when I had gone in too far and uh, a, a swell was building behind me that I couldn't get back up over the shoulder of it. And I got swept in towards the beach and just ragdolled the whole way in. Uh, total mess. And um, the beach uh, was uh, easy enough to access by boat, but an absolute nightmare to access on foot. A uh, big, long walk-in. And it ended up with the kayak on the beach. And then me, I think with the paddle, uh, swing back out through the swell to try and like uh, alert those on the boat. I think it was my friend Tom, like, hey, I'm here. And uh, I remember at that point getting to swim failure. Like literally, despite all the swimming I've ever done, the distances I've had to swim, the great affinity I have with playing with waves and going underwater, it got to a point where I just, I couldn't swim. Um, and luckily I did have a PFD on. I was pretty tired out from going through the waves. Did I have a PFD on? I must have had, that'd be ridiculous if I didn't. Yeah, I must have had one, but certainly I couldn't swim any further. I remember that much. And I was waving the paddle and Tom managed to get the boat and kind of swoop in and, and grab me and get me out of there. And then a couple of days later, we had to walk all the way in to Dailong Wan, all the way in from the road, hours and hours walking in to get this kayak, to put it on our heads, to then walk all the way back out with it. Um, yeah, a total logistic mess, but caused by the fact that I just, I couldn't swim anymore. I was so tired from what happened in the swell and everything else that day. I think the story is probably a little bit longer than that. But um, swim failure is definitely something I've experienced. Uh, continuing down the list then, more than 30 minutes uh, time immersed, hypothermia, and post-immersion it has here, hydrostatic squeeze, secondary drowning, post-rescue collapse, during and after rescue. Well, we've got a few things to learn there, haven't we? Okay. So it says the first three stages are all likely to cause a person not wearing a life jacket to drown. Absolutely right. Zero to three minutes, cold water shock and diving reflex. Okay. What's the diving reflex? In warm water, the body's natural reaction on immersion is involuntary to hold one's breath, okay? With a slowing of the blood circulation and heartbeat. That's called the diving reflex. And it says there's lots of video clips on YouTube showing babies swimming happily underwater in warm water swimming pools as if it's completely natural for human beings. However, in water at a temperature of 15 Celsius and below, cold water shock will, in most cases, completely overcome the diving reflex. Its effects should not be underestimated. So 
This is an important element. You see, we have an idea about what we think is going to happen when we go into water. We think that what's going to happen is that we're going to uh, involuntarily hold our breath, that we're going to slow our blood circulation, things that we're used to when we're in water anyway. But it may well be that things happen that you're not expecting. And one of them is this involuntary gasp that happens when you first go into the water. The biggest problem for people jumping like off oil rigs and ships into the sea in a, in a survival situation is that it may not be their choice to take a big <gasps> of air uh, as you as you hit this cold, cold water, which obviously if you're then under the water, that's going to be a pro big problem. The way that they cover that is you'll always see them like holding their nose and covering their mouth. And that's not so they don't like get some little spit spots of water in their mouth that's, you know, uh, 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 you know, I've got some water in my mouth. It's to stop that involuntary gas that may occur. If you're jumping off the side of a ship or, a, or an oil rig, God help you, um, that's a long way down. That's going to be deep immersion. If you have an involuntary gasp when you're four or five meters underwater before you come back to the surface, you're getting a full lungful of whatever is down there. And uh, that is going to really um, slow down your chances of, of surviving what's coming next. Um, so when you go into those kind of conditions, you're covering your nose, squeezing it shut with your hand and covering your own mouth with your hand in a way that you can't breathe. You're essentially like cutting off your own air supply so that you do not make the mistake of accidentally breathing in when you go underwater with that breakdown of the diving reflex. Now it says that um, because water conducts heat away from the body at a rate that's 26 times faster than air, the human body cools at a rate four to six times faster than in water. Um, so even if you might have water that's like, you know, 20 Celsius water, which is, you know, pretty, pretty up there. Let's have a quick see. I'll make sure I keep making sure everybody's on, on, on side with the temperature. So you've got 68 Fahrenheit water and you're going in there. All of these things still apply. Um, but you need to be aware of the fact that your uh, water is allowing heat to be conducted away from your body 26 times faster and that your body is therefore going to cool down four to six times faster than it would do normally. And we all know what that is. You go in the water, you're playing, you're swimming, you're doing whatever it is. You come out and you realize, stupid, I'm, I'm pretty cold here. Well, if you're in a survival situation, that effect can lead to I cannot operate my body properly, which is I think what we're going to get into soon as we start to unpack this, that you start to get to a point where you have swim failure because your uh, blood is moving away from your extremities, your muscles are not able to get rid of the lactic acid as quickly, they're not able to get oxygenated as quickly, and your nerve impulses going to your muscles are not going to be as uh, useful to you as they have previously been. Things are going to happen to you physiologically that you're not expecting and are going to kind of be like a reality mallet uh, in the situation where you think like, oh yeah, you know, I fall in, I'm going to swim after the boat. It's like the boat's going too quick. Uh, you've had an involuntary gasp. Your muscles are starting to slow down and cramp. Um, you, you've now got water in your lungs and you're developing more water in your lungs as you try and deal with the first water that went in. You know, all these things, you know, why would you not have a life jacket on? <laughs> it becomes like, uh, why would you not? Um, it says over time in cold water, the body will lose energy faster than it can make it and therefore become hypothermic. It, it, your body is producing heat all the time as it breaks down the things you've eaten, as you rest, as you, you know, go through the respiration cycle. These uh, 
waste effects from your cells doing their work is heat and that warms you up that is keeping your body at normal body temperature if it starts to slow down then you've got some serious issues and there's a lovely um, kind of graph or a pictorial kind of description here uh, on it's gone x and y axis across the bottom it's approximate time in hours and then it's got um, temperature of the body kind of uh, starting at 38 celsius 100 fahrenheit normal body temperature and then arcing down so that we've got the initial immersion at hour zero as you might imagine across the bottom and then by one hour we've already started to drop our core temperature down to 36 celsius 97 fahrenheit by hour two we're at uh, 34 degrees celsius 93 fahrenheit and this is going into water which is 10 celsius or 50 fahrenheit so you know, two hours, you're starting to get into a pretty serious situation in water that's 10 Celsius. That's, you know, that's pretty damn cold, right? So let's have a quick look at the steps here. Going in at uh, about 15 minutes into the first hour, cold, shock, incapacitation, and panic. I think that's the thing that worries me is that I may just get into that situation and realize because I've been I've been habituated to it over many years that I, I this is the one I can't deal with. This is the problem I, I, I don't know what to... I don't know where to go with this. I have no mental kind of concepts. I don't spend any time in cold water. That would be my concern that panic would become a serious, like clouding issue for me if I was in cold water. Incapacitation, um, a friend of mine, um, uh, her and her brother in the end ended up um, creating the Team O back toe life jackets I'm always going on about. And that came about because she went into the water. Um, they're out sailing. They're a very competitive family of sailors, um, been around the water their entire lives very very competent 30 foot um, open boat an etchel which I'm sure many of you'll know and she went into the water and the way she told me the story although I'm going back 10 years now basically it only took them like 10 or 15 minutes to get back to her only and I'm doing air bunnies here there was a bit of an issue how they got back to her but whatever the time delay was although she's a very competent swimmer has been in that situation many times before and the water wasn't absolutely freezing it was cold enough and it was long enough and what she was wearing was difficult enough to deal with that she felt that she didn't have much longer left before they finally came back and and got her and as a family their reaction to that was to to start a life jacket company so clearly after many decades of sailing this incident was serious enough that they decided that that incapacitation which happened within the first 15 or 20 minutes you know for them was something they could overcome by actually helping other people but um cold shock incapacitation and panic in the first 15 odd minutes going into 30 minutes 30 40 minutes breathing and heart rate settled down so you know starting to like okay this is where we are taking stock of situation shivering increasing in intensity so you may well be starting to get mentally to the point where you've you know able to work this through i guess the amount of time's gone past that a panic attack normally lasts for right like 13 40 minutes um but now you are obviously starting to shiver a lot because you are losing heat 26 times faster than in air so you're cooling down six times faster than you normally would do um, if you're just out in 10 celsius 50 fahrenheit air temperature by the time you get to one hour you are feeling very cold you're worried yeah i guess we can guess that uh, shivering intensely hand function virtually useless now i remember watching a uh an example given by I think it was it might have been the US Coast Guard and they had some volunteer uh, seamen who came in and they got into um, baths of ice 
and uh, as soon as they entered the water um, and settled down into the the, uh, the 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 water, they were given a flare to to get out of a packet. I think they were given a flare and they were giving a light stick. And uh, the the flare had like a cap that needed to come off and then twist something or push something. The light stick had a, a packaging that needed to be ripped open. Uh, before and just as they went into the water, they were able to deal with this. But it was only like 20 minutes into it. They literally didn't have the hand operation to be able to rip open just like the plastic wrapping or to to uh, handle the um, the cap and the and the turn twist on the on the flare. So at that point, even if they'd wanted to save themselves, they they couldn't have done any more. And I think that's the thing that always concerns me when it comes to the life jacket thing. It's like unless you have been in a situation where you've gone into cold shock where you've been incapacitated where you've had sense of doom where you've had you know shell core shunt which means that you can't use your hands anymore you just kind of think that it's going to be okay it has not been a problem previously so it won't be a problem in the future well surprise surprise it it really is and suddenly your body doesn't work the way it's expecting to um, going into an hour and a half very cold losing interest and will to live imagine where you'd have to be that you're losing interest and will to live. So you go off the back of the boat, you see the light disappearing into the distance and you're either in the darkness or the moonlight or whatever it is and the waves are coming and going, what have you. And you're, you're fighting, trying to like, you know, okay, is my life jacket right and get all my things, you know, get my boots under my armpits and close off the bottom of my pants and the heat escape loss preventing position and do all those things. But now we're getting to like an hour and a half. Now they haven't noticed that you're off the back of the boat. And you start to lose interest and will to live. Petrifying. Cramp, nausea, breathing difficult, pupils dilate, confusion and disorientation. So at this point, you cannot help with your own rescue. You, If they pass you a line, you can't do anything with it. You can't make sure that halyard snap shackle is done up. You can't maneuver to them. You can't get into a life raft. You can't. Basically, some other human being is going to have to come and fish you out of this situation. If you're an hour and a half in 50 degree Fahrenheit water, you're basically toast unless someone completely comes and saves you. After the two hour mark, um, uh, amnesia. And uh, thereafter, stiffness of limbs, then irregular heart rate, temperatures dropping now, and now we're down below 30 Celsius, 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, as soon as you get like below that 34 uh, Celsius, 93 Fahrenheit, you've got these elements and symptoms of the brain starting to not work properly because the temperature is not right for it. Um, you're losing interest in will to live. Yeah, okay, but pupils dilate, confusion and disorientation. Next thing, amnesia. Next thing, irregular heart rate. And then as the body starts to drop below 30 Celsius, 86 Fahrenheit, two and a half hours into being in 50 degree Fahrenheit, 10 Celsius water, loss of consciousness and soon thereafter death from drowning okay now if you've got a life jacket on yeah your head will be above the water but you are you are dead at that point so this is one of the things uh, i always talk about the fact that it's the, the the ramp of consequences when you're on the water you know you kind of you know this might happen you know that might happen you have this piece of equipment or you've got this standard operating procedure you've trained for this trained for that but unless you've experienced it it's difficult to understand like how quickly all the things against you start to stack up it's not just you know, if you're like, involved in a motor vehicle accident, once everything come to a rest, as long as it's not a spark, as long as it's not a fire, 
it's at rest, right? It's not going to get worse unless you're like tumbling down a cliff or something. But it, it, what has happened has happened. And then hopefully there's going to be bystanders. They're going to come and help and they're going to phone the emergency services and they're going to turn up with all these things that can help keep your body going until you get to a primary healthcare facility. And then, you you know, then hopefully you're golden, right? Someone can sort you out from this terrible situation you've got into. The problem with the ocean is you can trip, which is quite a small issue to have. Like old people trip and then have serious problems, right? In the home, they trip and they've broken an arm, they've broken a hip, they've they've done something to themselves, which is like way bigger than you would expect to happen from a trip or a fall. It's the same on the boat. You have a trip or a fall and now you're wet. And then two hours later, uh, amnesia, stiffness of limbs, irregular heart rate, loss of consciousness, death from drowning. Um, so you fall off the side of the boat halfway through your watch doing something uh, double-handed, doing it with your partner. And two hours later, as they're just waking up thinking, oh, we didn't come and wake me, uh, you are loss of consciousness and death from drowning. I guess <laughs> kind of like laying it on pretty heavy here. But um, hey, if people are not wearing life jackets, it's because they don't understand this. Anybody who does understand this and says, nah, it's fine. Like, you know, don't, don't worry about me. I'll be okay. It has some kind of misunderstanding about the uh, the ramp of consequences. Um, well, they, they uh, go through here what I just mentioned. The initial reaction of falling into cold water can be an involuntary sudden intake of breath, or in other words, a sudden gasp. This can occur with the head above or below the water because we don't have that um, diving instinct in play now. Um, if the mouth and nose are under the water, then well, then water will be aspirated into the, into the lungs. It's interesting that... Um, People going into warm water and drowning, they, they very rarely have water in their lungs that was taken in during the period of time that they were conscious. It only gets in there afterwards. Um, but if people go into cold water, they often have water in their lungs for, uh, from the initial immersion. Um, and that's a big problem. One of the things we're going to talk about, maybe it goes into this a little bit further along in this uh, chapter, but um, the uh, there's so much flora and fauna in seawater. There's so many you know living things. That's what that terrible stink is when you have uh, you know I know some salt water in some engine filter or water maker filter or something like that where it's been sitting and sitting and you crack the top on it and it absolutely stinks. That is all of the things rotting and dying in the water. If that gets into your lungs, even if you get out of the water having been successfully rescued or rescued yourself all that crap is still in your lungs. And then your lungs can start having a serious issue with this mega irritant, which is in there, i.e. the salt water and all this living fauna, which is now starting to die off. And it will start to introduce water into your lungs. And this is pulmonary edema, which will then stop the, um, the alveoli in your lungs from uh, you know, uh, converting or converting uh, transporting, I guess is the correct word, oxygen across the uh, that semi-permeable membrane between the blood and the interior of the lungs. If you're getting water in that area and you're getting that kind of rousy, wet sound inside the lungs of someone that's come out of the water, you've got a serious problem here. This person's on the way to what we call secondary drowning. So um, that initial gasp, if you fall into the water and you're, you know, you're going in, you have one thing that you think of is that you've got to keep your mouth shut or you have to shut it with your own hand is the only way to do it. After the initial gasp, it says, uh, the breathing rate immediately increases from a usual at-rest rate around 10 or 12 breaths per minute to about 60 or 70 breaths per minute. Imagine that, you're breathing every second, like clearly you're hyperventilating. And clearly if that goes on for any period of time, you're gonna be in a bit of a mess, like psychologically you're gonna be in a mess. If I asked you to hyperventilate at a rate of 60 or 70 breaths a minute, 
for the next couple of minutes, you're going to be feeling pretty awful after that. Suddenly, your breathing volume rate has increased from like 16 liters a minute to like 116 liters a minute. And um, this is going to have uh, a much greater chance uh, associated with it of you uh, breathing in water, that you're not going to be coordinating what's going on with your mouth in the way that you would normally do when you're around uh, the water, when you're normally swimming. And suddenly you're you're going to pant and pant in water. It might only happen three, four times, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's potentially lethal, right? So um, the lethal limit for seawater is about 1.5 liters. Okay, that's not very much. For the average 70 kilo adult, 1.5 liters, how much is that? That's like uh, a quart, right? A little bit more, a little bit more than a quart. I always get stuck with this stuff. Like one cup is 200 mil, so it's like six cups of water. You're meant to drink eight cups a day. Well, if you have six of them go in your lungs, that's the the end. It's, it's better for freshwater sailors, as the book says, where the lethal aspiration limit is double that of seawater. But it's that seawater content which is going to start wrecking your lungs. And even if you do get it out, there's so much left in there from that flora and fauna that it's going to create an issue that leads to secondary drowning. So having that uh, heart rate up, having that aspiration rate uh, up, or that respiration rate up, rather, um, is going to make it very much more difficult for you to manage keeping water out of your mouth, which is why, of course, your life jacket has that spray shield on it, or it should do wherever you are, unless your lake, your river, your reservoir doesn't have waves. Um, the spray shield should be behind you. You pull that down over your head, over the jacket, and that's going to massively reduce the amount of uh, action from the waves and, and your body roll and movement in the water, splashing water into your mouth. Breath holding. Very good point here. Um, have you ever like tried to fix un a, a, a problem under the boat and thinking, well, I'll just dive down there and have a look at it. And like, I've kind of got out of the habit of doing that now because these 60 plus foot boats, you know, the, the prop is quite a long way under the boat. It's quite a long way underwater compared to what I might have been expecting. So I'm not thinking I can like swim under Falcon that's 21 feet wide, six and a half meters wide, swim three meters underwater at a depth of one meter to get to the prop to assess an issue to fix the issue to swim three and a half meters back out to get another gas to go back it's just not it's not where i'm at right um it would be nice i guess i could train towards that but the reality is if you're going to do anything under a boat like that you're going to have to have proper diving gear but if you have a smaller boat you may have that feeling like oh, i just dive under there and, and grab it and yet so many times suddenly you can't hold your breath in the way that you might have been expecting or the way that you can in your armchair and that, of course, is because um, if in seawater it's cold or if there's any kind of um, mental, um, like an acute situation going on for you mentally, like, wow, this is cold or wow, I'm stressed or wow, whatever it is, it's going to be very much harder for you to hold your breath if you're already hyperventilating at nearly 10 times the uh, volume of air going into your lungs than you'd be expecting every minute. It's going to be basically impossible for you to hold your breath much beyond uh 10 seconds, you know, and I know I can hold my breath for two minutes almost at any given moment, but I think 10 seconds is a very realistic amount to think about like diving quickly under a, a boat in cold water. Um, it finishes up with this section by saying at the same time, blood vessels close to the skin shut down, causing the heart to work harder and a sharp increase in blood pressure. This may be sufficient depending on your fitness level to initiate a heart attack or stroke. So you go into the water like feeling like you're pretty fit. I'm pretty fit right now. I just came back from sailing 10,000 miles this year, 2,000 of them solo on an 80 footer. Like I'm feeling you know, pretty, pretty lithe, 
but I could go into the water and after 25 minutes, hyperventilating, uh, unable to hold my breath, blood pressure up, much closer to a stroke and uh, a heart attack kind of areas, um, ingested water, um, my hands are starting to become useless, I'm getting confused. I may as well be 80 years old and have just, you know, just had the same thing happen to me. It's just, if you're fitter for it, you can last longer. If you're younger, perhaps you can last longer. But in the end, everybody's ending up in the same position. And it's all about not being in the water longer than your health level, your age, your fitness level, your, your um, I know you're kind of, uh, your, whether you find cold water to be welcoming or absolutely petrifying as I do. I know Christina would say, well, you know, if it's 10 degrees Celsius, I'm going to need to, <laughs> going to need to wear a lighter bathing suit. This is going to be too warm for me. But for me, 10 degrees Celsius, I think mentally I'd be in a pretty bad place pretty quick. Okay, good. So it starts to give us, having completely petrified ourselves now for 40 odd minutes, um, can we have a couple of like ideas here on, on how to move forward? I can see this is going to be a freaking long uh, a podcast. How many more pages we've got? Like six pages. Good Lord. Well, I guess if it's like the stuff that saves you, then it's worth listening to, isn't it? All right. So protecting against cold shock. The first line of defense against cold shock is to not enter the water in the first place. Bravo. <laughs> All of this, every part of this is about not going in the water. That's everything that comes next is just do not go in the water. The water is danger. The water is bad. I can remember writing um, a, uh, a blog years ago. It was coming to Christmas and I was really struck by the idea that I was like a thousand miles offshore and it was cold. I was in the Southern Ocean and I was really struck by the fact that for me, like light and darkness, life and death, warmth and 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 frigid hostility were literally just either sides of the of the guardrail they are either side of the thickness of the hull they were one trip away from changing massively uh, if i made a mistake and i wrote a podcast all about the fact of uh, not sorry wrote a, a, a blog all about the fact that people should consider that and as we went into christmas consider that you know you could be warm and cozy and happy on your side of the wall dividing your house or apartment from somebody else and on the other side of it someone's having a really miserable time and you should consider like you know going around seeing how people are inviting them around for, for christmas something like that but this incredible dichotomy between the absolute savage nature of the ocean the 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 man-eating nature of the thing. I read that in a book today, actually, and I guess that book connects into what we're talking about here as well. Um, but I never really heard that phrase before, but the, the sea is a man-eater. It's a person-eater, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, it it's just going to take you and that's the end of it. And the only thing you've got is to stay attached to that boat. That's it. It That's what it is. That's, that's how you solve all these problems. Everything else we're going to discuss now is if you fail in that task, well then... <laughs> try these other things <laughs> this is like the hammers at the top of the toolbox and once the hammer is don't get separated from the boat underneath that are all the other tools that may help solve the problem if if you if you fail on that one um the first line of defense against cold water shock is not to enter the water yes fit guard wires and lifelines that are high enough to help prevent falling overboard around the edges of the boat interesting phraseology there that are high enough to help prevent falling overboard the standard height for um, lifelines, certainly in the racing stuff we did for years and years, is 600 millimeters. So I'm just going to, that's the, the standard width of a, um, 
uh, like a kitchen unit in the UK, uh, the, the standard width of a hob or something. Let's uh, let's just find out what that is in inches, because uh, I know for some folks, the whole millimeters inches thing. Oh my God, it's so tricky when you're trying to do these things as you go along. I can tell you that 600 meters is 0.6 of a kilometer. That is not helpful whatsoever. <laughs> whatsoever. Inches, 600 millimeters. Here we go. We've got it. 23 inches. So 23 inches height-wise is the standard height of guardrails. Now, for, for me personally, at my height, I'm um, like 5'10". That's 178 centimeters. That is exactly behind my knee. Like that's literally, that's not there to like help keep me on the boat. That's there to help tip me off the boat. Like if you're slightly unsteady on your approach to the guardrail, this thing will finish you off. It could almost be fitted there direct, apart from making it like six inches high so you just actually trip over it. I can't think of any height that would be like less help, less helpful. What's interesting is that the new guidelines for like the open 60s and, and some race boats now 900 millimeters so just coming up to a meter that's 35 inches high and that i think it puts like another bar on your instead of having two guard wires going around you've got three guard wires going around and it's very different if you if you work on a boat that's uh, that kind of height you can almost like trust it's there for me it ends up coming like mid thigh like maybe slightly under my butt um it's it's a very useful height and of course if you're any smaller than that particularly children it's a it's a, it's a difference it's the difference between falling over and not falling over. Um, it, it, you know, the boats come with the guard wires that are attached. Uh, you can change that. You don't have to keep it the way it is. Uh, you can seek something out. Now, stainless steel work is very expensive and no one's like wanting to spend out on things. But is there a particular area where they could be higher? Aesthetically, can you make it work? Like I know for smaller boats, having a nearly three foot high guardrails all the way around the edge or guard wires rather around the edge would kind of look a bit clunky. We've got used to the way things look, but if we're addressing the point of do our guard wires um, help us to prevent falling, uh, prevent uh, people from falling overboard, the answer on the whole is no, which I guess for me, it does raise a question like, well, what are they there for? Then? <laughs> like I spent all my time when people comes on the boat saying, don't sit on the guard wires, don't hold on to the guard wires, don't clip onto the guard wires. Like, And then I tell people, well, in the event of getting flicked across the cockpit, not clipped on, you're just Superman straight out through the guard wires. Now I'm sharing with you the fact that they're like a trip hazard and will actually help tip you over the side. It does start to raise the question like, what are these things? <laughs> what are these things for? A lot of the time, if you think about it, going back historically, like boats didn't have guard wires going around them. And then there's the beginning of, you know, like in the racing, it becomes uneconomical to keep losing crew over the side. So I guess we could better put something on there. And that would be the, the lowest possible single line of twisted, um, you know, hemp rope you could have with phosphor bronze stanchions holding it up. Probably not any kind of pulpit or push pit on it at all. And then slowly over time it builds up. But a lot of the time with the guardrails, you know, take a look at your boat. Is that there because it stops people from falling over the side of the boat? Or is it there because aesthetically it's the, the best height to kind of keep the lines of the boat and kind of pay lip service to preventing people going over the side? I think that's that's worth worth considering, right? Um, the World Sailing Offshore Special Regulations, which are used for racing. Oh, it specifies a minimum height of 450 mil if the boat is less than 8.5 meters. 8.5 meters, what's that? That's like 26 foot, something like that. 
and not less than 600 mil if the boat's over 8.5 meters, which I just said. Um, using now, I hope it's got quite a lot written about this. Using a safety line or lanyard attached to a strong point or lazy jack line to prevent falling in by accident. Okay, this is worth going into in some detail. Um, I guess everyone's got their way with this. What we're talking about is those lines that run from the front of the boat to the back. They run from the front of the cockpit to the back. You may have them going across the boat. You may have them specially set up in, in particular areas where you work, but it's a line that's dedicated to you clipping into it with that safety tether coming from your life jacket, from the harness in your life jacket, and that's where you clip into, and that thing is strong enough to hold you if you the boat flips onto its side, if it rolls over, if it, you know, wave washes over the deck, whatever it is, you're still going to be attached to the boat. The number one basic thing we've agreed that we're going to do to avoid, you know, going into the cold water and all the rest of this stuff. But there's a lot more kind of nuance to it than that. Like on the 80 foot boat we've got now, I am going to have to fit a uh, lazy jack that, no, not lazy jack. Hang on, get this right. <laughs> it's uh, lazy jacks are on the, oh, that's interesting. Lazy jacks, lazy jacks and jack lines hmm hmm so in this book it says lazy jack line use a safety line or lanyard attached to a strong point or lazy jack line hang on lazy jacks are the things that the mainsail comes down into aren't they i thought jack lines were the things that run on the deck hmm <laughs> okay let's not call it lazy jack because that's getting me confused uh i think jack lines running up and down the deck that's what we're talking about here right so um, there's definitely nuance there. I need to fit one that goes across from port to starboard because you can go up the starboard side of the boat and then when you have to like cross, like you go up the high side of the boat to get to an issue with say the jib seats, you want to transfer transfer from the high side to the low side. There's no way of doing that apart from like holding onto the mast, clipping onto a halyard and then holding onto halyards on the other side of the mast and easing yourself down to you can get hold of the, the uh, I'm going to say lazy jack, the jack line on the uh, leeward side. I don't think that that's the best way of doing that. I know from working on the clipper boats and tall ships and commercial boats and everything else, the way to solve that is to have a jack line that goes across the deck. So that's something I know I need to fit. In the cockpit, we have lines running from front to back, but then they go under the traveler, which means you have to unclip from one side of the traveler and lean over the traveler and clip on the other side. That's also kind of a no-no, but very difficult to know what the solution is when you've got a, you know a raised main a traveler system which what are you going to do like put the put the jack lines over the top of it like that's kind of impossible on my boat um the the the, the traveler track is the full width of the boat like the traveler car could be 20 feet different positions and two different tacks you know if you're reaching um but it's worth considering how do you solve that problem because the you, you must be connected in at all times and you have those double hooks on your life jacket tether system which could allow you to flick from one to the other, but you're leaning over the traveler to do it. The other thing which we have on our boat is that the jack lines go up the starboard side to like just forward of the cockpit, then they actually pass through a D ring, which is on the deck, which I think is there so that crew who are sitting outboard of the cockpit in the event of you know racing with crew on deck and hiking, that they are well supported by the jack line in the event that they get dunked. You know, the worst scenario is something happens that like you crash tack or what have you that the boat unexpectedly all the crew are caught on the leeward rail which very previously just previously had been the 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 weather rail they're all now getting you know half slung in the water they're getting washed down the deck and the jack line is under huge uh tension with all their weight on it it's also bowing out massively from the position where it was previously so 
passing the jack line through a D-ring at that position means that there'd be less movement in the jack line. But what of course it means is that you then can't just rush from the wheel to the foredeck, which sometimes is required, without stopping and reclipping on the way, which you know may or may not happen. So those kind of details are like transporting up and down jack lines. The other thing is like the positioning of the jack lines on my boat. It's so far to the edge of the boat from where the jack lines are positioned that even at maximum extension on the tether system on my life jacket, I still can't get over the rail, which is is good, right? That's we like that. Um, the thing is, though, that on smaller boats, I know that if the jack lines run down the side decks, you can easily be over the rail and in the water before uh, your, your your tether line comes tight. So I know that um, John and Phyllis from Obtainable Adventure Cruising, they're very much um, of the opinion that you should have a central uh, jack line running down the middle of the boat, and that's what you clip onto when you're out of the cockpit. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think there really is. It's uh, For me, it'd be difficult because I wouldn't be able to like do the work I need to do on the side decks, but I think for a smaller boat, if you can be clipped on somewhere closer to the center even if it's not exactly on the center just maximize that 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 reach that length of your tether because those things are you know they're pretty long right and if you're over the side of the boat and getting dragged in the water well that's a whole other load of problems um okay um now they're talking here about the kind of uh, hooks that should be on the end of your tether for your life jacket let's just say the tether that you have on your life jacket must be at least less than five years old. We could just say that, couldn't we? Then we wouldn't really have to work out what kind of hook should be on the end of it. If it's been purchased within the last five years, that means that there's very unlikely to have microfractures in the metalwork, whether it be aluminum or alloy or, or, or steel on the, on the hook, and that it should be of a design which is kind of up to date because five years ago is only 2017. And I would extend this out from the commercial stuff we do. We can't have life jackets on board that are more than five years. They've got to be replaced. And, you know, there's, I've never had a life jacket on board a boat I've been running end up not functional at five years. But I know that you have to be more careful checking them. And I will say this, that I've been and done a lot of training. I did safety training quite recently. I think I mentioned this in another podcast um, here in Halifax. And um, when we jumped in the pool, I had on my um, Timo back toe life jacket and I knew that it was 100%, like no problem. Lovely feeling, jump in there and know this thing's going to go off. And he, the guy that was doing the, um, the instruction was like, and normally, you know, people go underwater, then they come back to the surface and you count three, four, five, and then their life jacket goes off. I'm like, yeah, watch this. As soon as I was underwater, it, 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 the thing was going off and bringing me back to the surface. Perfect. I was the only one in the group. There was eight people in that group and seven other people, their life jackets didn't go off for a variety of reasons. One guy didn't have one on. Uh, it was being delivered and be with us, you know, in 10 minutes. So he jumped in with a life jacket. Okay, free pass. One guy had a PFD on. He was in the same basket. The life jackets were coming in 10, 15 minutes. Okay, so free pass. Mine went off. So now we're down to the remaining five. None of them, their life jackets went off. Either the automatic bobbin wasn't in, the cylinder wasn't screwed in tightly, or what I've seen, I don't think it happened to this group, but what I've seen is that people have been like folding the life jackets away neatly. There used to be a style of life jacket um, was it suspenders or SOS penders? I don't know how you say that, but suspenders was a American um, life jacket manufacturer. I've seen them ago again on cruise savers, I think, where the bladder is literally that the life jacket itself unfolds. It had like a couple of press clips up at the shoulders. And then as you 
um, as your life jacket inflates, it's literally just unfolding itself. Well, the problem is that those neat corners, the high corners like up above your shoulders at the edge of where this folded down life jacket uh, exists, they would start to wear out. And uh, you get it that you, yeah, it went off and that's fine, looks great. But after a while of being in the pool or you know, you're testing it by blowing it up and having it in the boat for a little while with you and monitoring it, you'd realize it's going down. It was always because of damage in those top corners. It's either that the design asks for it to be folded down like that. You don't see life jackets like that anymore or that people were taking time to fold the life jacket down neatly into that position and so creating the problem. So um, if you have a life jacket that's under five years and you have a safety tether that's under five years, you should be like, <laughs> you should be like in the field. Like you kind of, you're running with those who have the right gear. Maybe yours is a bit older, but as long as it does what it says on the packet and it's inside of a time period, you shouldn't at least be worrying about like design flaws that we've now worked past in this essential piece of life-saving equipment. Um, what's you've got here now, we continue. It says, when it's not possible to hook on or entering the water has become inevitable, so hook on, they mean clip onto the boat, reduce the effects of cold shock by wearing a life jacket, bingo, get your uh, chest, shoulders, neck, and head out of the water with a, a light, proper life jacket, uh, wear waterproof clothing and thermal undergarments, or better still, an immersion suit. Probably something that, you know, you probably, if you're unintentionally going to the water, you might not have an immersion suit on. But if you can keep the water off your skin, particularly if you can keep an air pocket around you, then, you know, that's, that's what you want. If you can't do that, then your waterproof uh, gear that you're wearing, as you go into the water, you can get the, um, the, the legs and the wrists and the neck like really cinched down and the waist cinched down and it all as tight as it kind of can be and try and keep the water around you. It's like having a... Uh, a wetsuit essentially that's what a wetsuit does right it allows water in then you warm it up and then it can't get out again and now you've got a nice kind of warm jacuzzi of water around you inside the uh, the wetsuit that's what you'd be trying to do with your um, sailing gear those um, straps down at the bottom it can be done right up nice and tight around your legs you might not want to keep wearing the boots because they might feel that they're um, slowing you down i've got to say when i did that my life-saving uh, training um whatever a couple of months ago the same same gig i was talking about um they said wear what it is that you'd wear on deck and i turned up like barefoot with a set of slam um high high bibs and a uh a four deck smock essentially and my life jacket and he's like you're not got any boots and like i don't wear boots which you know 65 70 maybe 80 percent of the time is true for me in my situation but it, what it did give was an opportunity to see the difference between someone swimming barefoot and someone swimming with boots on because all the others had boots on. I was literally a whole length of the pool ahead of them, um, not through any fitness uh, levels on my side. They're all young people and they're all very fit. But just trying to swim in boots is nigh on impossible. So what you can do, as I've mentioned, is take the boots off and then plunge them back into the water with the uh, the ankle part like facing downwards, essentially trapping water in, uh, trapping air inside the boot, put those under your um, armpits, they'll help to keep yet more of your body out of the water, very, very important. But if you can't do that, or it doesn't kind of work out, just kick them off, get rid of them, and uh, and then get those straps and do them up around your ankles as tight as you can do, and stop the water from flowing out through the bottom of your uh, sailing gear. Same with the wrists, same with the waist, same with the neck, just keep that water around you as warm as you possibly can. It says also that uh, if you're abandoning a ship, get straight into the life raft whenever possible. I guess that's 
it seems kind of obvious, doesn't it, that you'd get out and get into the life raft. But there's all sorts of situations where you might choose not to go into the life raft where you've, you know, there's people already in the life raft. This, of course, is the issue at the end of the Titanic uh, film where it was there room for him to get onto that door uh, with um, Kate Winslet or did he really have to die in the in the water in the way that he did? Getting out of the water has to be your sole focus because of this issue of hypothermia and everything else that's going to come there afterwards. Just getting your body out the water is very important. So if you have a life raft available, if you have anything available, you can get onto or up into or whatever it is, you have to take it and not allow, not make poor choices that would then um, end in you, you know, exposing yourself to more risk than was otherwise required. Um, it says, uh, if entering the water is inevitable, enter the water slowly with your life jacket inflated. Do not try to swim, adopt the help position, you know, big dives off the boat, big jumps. You can actually jump in in such a way if your crotch strap's not uh, fully done up that an inflated life jacket might well rip straight off off the, the top of your uh, uh, torso, you know, and uh, then you've got all sorts of extra issue. Adopt the help position, which it says is going to be coming up in future pages, but we should know that the help position is the heat escape loss preventing position where you tuck your arms and elbows in as close as you can around your core organs. You bring your knees up as much as you can, maybe hold on to your legs if you can, just hold water around you to stop it from moving away as quickly as it might. Um, to go the other way with this is is to uh, understand the nature of the problem. You can get cold plunge tanks now that people use as a way of uh, getting that you know cold exposure hardening of their system and and uh, the health benefits that come thereof. Kind of the opposite end of the scale from using a sauna or a steam room. But those tanks come in two forms: either that it just it chills the water, or one where it circulates the water, which then makes it feel much colder. So when it circulates the water you feel colder so you know the reverse of that when we go into the water and we want to try and be as warm as possible even though the water temperature is low we have to stop the water from circulating and that's the heat escape loss preventing position just trying to hold like a, a basketball size a bubble of warm water in front of you as much as possible um, regular cold showers baths or sea swimming can help to prepare your body for sudden immersion in cold water very very wise words tests have shown that after just one week of daily cold showers the effects of cold water shock can be reduced by 50 percent five zero fifty percent i can even read that again regular cold showers baths or sea swimming can help to prepare your body for sun immersion in cold water tests have shown that after just one week of daily cold showers the effects of cold water shock can be reduced by 50 percent Oh, God, now I'm going to have to start having cold showers. There's no way you can get around the numbers there, right? 50% reduction in the serious onset symptoms that then prohibit you from taking things into your own hands and, and saving yourself from just doing a week of cold water showers. This is kind of what we went into this thinking, wasn't it? If you could get used to it, then you would have a, a fighting advantage um, there's just no way of getting around it. That's the best way. If you're better with cold water, it's going to be less of a shock when you go in there. I think I'm repeating this so many times for myself, not for you. I think like I don't want to do this, but it's the only way of dealing with it. Um, the fitter you are, it says the better you'll be able to withstand cold water shock and you're more likely to drown a result of entering cold water quickly than you are from hypothermia. If that's the thing that we get from this first hour of this podcast, 
I think there's a strength in that is don't separate from the boat. Be clipped on, be inside the guard wires, make sure all of that stuff is as solid as it possibly can be conceptually as well as physically. And then if you go into cold water, going in quickly with no prior experience or no no hardening off to cold water effects, you're much more likely to die from cold shock than you are from hypothermia. There's just no two ways around it. Let's have a quick see what else uh, this book goes into to help us with this. Uh, as it says here, not usually found aboard most cruising yachts, although increasingly in popularity with professional yachtsmen and commercial small boat operators, immersion or survival suits um, are designed to protect the wearer from cold water shock and the effects of hypothermia. There's two ways of having a set of waterproof gear for the boat. Like you can have a jacket and salopettes and you put those together as and when you like. And, you know, just put the, the bottoms on if it's not too cold. And you're just getting your legs wet and put the top on to put the jacket on to walk down to the yacht club. That's a very usable set of gear. But if you're actually in a situation where you think like, hey, this is actually getting quite serious. It is amazing to have an all-in-one set of Fowleys, a survival suit something that you can have available that you put on when it's getting real rough with the idea that if I had to go into the water, this is what I would prefer to be wearing. And of course, then you've got um, waterproof closures at the wrists. You've got made in socks that go into your boots. You've got waterproof zips, probably an entry and exit zip. And then perhaps on the, the male versions, you have one at the front to um, dissuade that 80% of men who drown uh, from from trying to uh, take off half their gear to use the bathroom off the back of the boat unfortunately it's one of those strange things hey this thing of people peeing off the back like I totally get it but if you're on your own uh, I hope everyone realizes that sales single-handed or short-handed don't go to the back of the boat to pee right that is a really bad idea guys like just FYI like I've just done 2,000 miles sailing that uh, maxi solo and it's uh, the guard wires at the back are at like nipple height they're, they're super high you're not going off the back of there and yet I still have a, an old water bottle which I use to pee either when I'm down inside the boat and then tip it out into the cockpit if it's rough rough weather or if I'm in the cockpit I'll just sit in the in the cockpit and pee into the bottle. Don't go to the edge of the boat unless you have to. Statistically you just you're increasing the proximity to the danger. You don't <laughs> you don't go and like peer in the door of the nuclear reactor like more than you absolutely have to, right? You don't go and stand looking down at the ocean more than you absolutely have to. Yes, you have to be clipped on. Yes, you got to have it so that the guardrails are something that actually secure you and you're not like just behind the back of your knee, but just don't go anywhere near it. I learned this uh, lesson on the Open 60 where I was once tipping out, actually, a, you know, I, I sailed around the world once with, with no toilet, with just a, a, a bucket on the boat, which is not uncommon on those race boats. And uh, although I don't think anybody's ever lost a race due to the weight of their toilet, you know, so I was a bit confused about that. But um, when you tip that bucket uh, out over the side, obviously there's paper and there's waste and there's water in there. And a bit of paper got stuck on the guardrail. And I kind of watched it for like, you know, 30 minutes as the sea washed it through thoroughly. And uh, it just wouldn't go away. I was like, what the heck? Like, I don't need to be looking at that. So I thought, well, I'll just scoot down the side deck and just, you know, knock it off with my, my foot or my shoe or whatever. And uh, as I got onto the side deck, a wave came barreling down the side of the boat. We were doing like 20 knots at the time. And a 15 to 20 knot wave was rolling down the side deck on this flipping boat and uh, caught me and washed me probably 10 or 12 feet down the boat and up against the 
the guardrails at the at the back of the boat up against the push pit absolutely petrified me it happened so fast and i was so completely out of control any thoughts of grabbing hold of anything or uh, having some kind of control of a situation instantly gone and uh, i learned then that uh, you know you just let those opportunities for uh, heroism pass by you don't go to the edge of the boat unless you have to there's a reason why it's 80 percent of it is guys that are dead it's because they're peeing off the back of the boat let's 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 understand that so an immersion suit may well have a little zipper at the front so you can have a quick go if you need to um there's a broad variety of them like the really heavy ones that are for survival off of oil rigs the one that i've got as a survival option on the uh, uh, shorthanded boat on falcon it's a big neoprene 11 mil neoprene suit so it has a lot of thermal insulation built into it as well as it, it holding out the the water i also have the ones which are like from musto or Halley hansen or whoever it is and um they're thin and easy to move around and then they're held up by dungarees inside it's kind of like a gore-tex material and you can have them as an alternative to normal jacket and trousers setup but if you go into the water then you are you don't have that water cooling you 20 was it, it it conducts heat away 26 times faster you cool five times faster than you would do normally you just gotta keep that um keep that statistic at bay you've got to have something which you can get into which stops you from dying of cold shock um, they're not very expensive if you make contact with a uh, company which does service on the life-saving gear used on um, big ships which you'd have in like I don't know Annapolis or Newport or um, uh, Nova Scotia be Halifax or up in St. John's or in the UK in Southampton or any any of those kind of places where big ships get their safety gear serviced. Those um, neoprene immersion suits, once they get to a certain period, I think it might be five years, they're no longer able to use them for for what they want them for on the on the ships. So they have to get rid of them, and you can get them very very cheap. I normally get them for like a hundred dollars some of the safety people were like no we have to cut the feet off this so it's not uh usable as a uh as an immersion suit anymore but if you can just chat to them then uh, they realize that you're not using it in a professional uh capacity then uh they're completely fine you know it, five years into the life of something made of neoprene is you've only just started right so um if you can get one having a couple of those on the boat tucked away in a corner somewhere is like a no-brainer they don't weigh anything they've got a volume yes but you can tuck it at the end of a locker somewhere and uh, it's just there in case that terrible day comes when you have to do something like get off the boat it's going to be better for you to be getting into a neoprene heavy ex-commercial immersion suit that you got for a hundred pounds from a sea survival shop than it is to be getting into what what exactly is your best option for getting into the water cold if you had to go into the water cold now what would you be putting on in your boat what would be your selection like all of your thermals um you can't put like two sets of waterproofs on can you like what is the option it's good to have an answer to that question okay the last page that i want to deal with in this chapter two of this RYAC survival handbook today is uh, hypothermia because cold shock may well kill you but in the end hypothermia is coming and pages 28 and 29 deal with that the thing that stands out on this page to me is that it has a graph here which shows the realistic upper limit of survival which is used by uk rescue services um, it says in northern european waters in the summer with an average water temperature of 15 celsius your potential survival time with clothing and a fully functional and properly fitted life jacket is up to 25 hours 25 hours in 
15 Celsius water. Now, how much is that in Fahrenheit? That is 59 Fahrenheit. Um, that is quite surprising to me. I, I don't think that I am a person that can survive that long in cold water, worryingly. I think I have to admit that to myself. Like if rescue is going to take the amount of time it takes for my EPUB to send a message and the ship to redivert and come to me, I better be in an immersion suit, otherwise I'm going to be dead. There's just no two ways about it. In winter, however, it points out your survival time could be as little as seven hours. That's like closer down to the bottom of the graph at two Celsius. And I think of my friend Christina Cunningham swimming in three degrees centigrade water. Her ability to resist uh, the onset of cold shock and hypothermia at those low temperatures is much greater than mine. Plus, she possibly could be swimming towards some kind of assistance or just keeping herself relatively warm. I've got nothing. I've got no ability to deal with that. I don't have swimming as an option. I don't have any, uh, you know, training for it. I, in fact, I have quite a, a weak kind of aspect to it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to admit that because I would like other people to admit that and in admitting it, take action towards doing something about it, right? Which seems to be from what we've learned here, having a week of cold showers would make me 50% better at dealing with it and having an old immersion suit from an oil rig or something on the boat is going to massively extend my time. Um, maybe I should join Christina and go and do some cold water swimming. Maybe that's the other idea. Um, the sea state, uh, your clothing, uh, gender with different fat levels, uh, fitness, health, shivering rate and age are all things which factor into this. But you know, I've got a uh, friend, Christopher Hope, who... Um, uh, goes sailing, uh, goes swim, well, goes sailing with me, and goes swimming in Lake Ontario in the winter. They like break the ice, and he goes in. Now he only goes in for a set period of time. I think it's five or ten minutes, but he's over eighty, and he's doing this, which shows that it's nothing to do with like the age of the body. It's to do with getting used to it, right? So this graph is very interesting, and and just has a uh, the numbers going across the bottom: two, four, six, eight, ten Celsius, and then going up five hours, ten hours, fifteen hours, twenty hours, like. Um, Two Celsius, it's saying seven hours. Um, that's, uh, that's that's pretty darn cold, right? That's what, 30, 37, is that something like that? In uh, 35, 35.6 Fahrenheit, uh, seven hours. And then things getting a little bit better if you can get uh, up to water temperature of, say, 10 Celsius. How much was that again? We had 10 Celsius as a conversion, only a 50 Fahrenheit. Um, upper limit of survival at 50 Fahrenheit, 15 hours. 15 hours. What's 15 hours? 15 hours is I set off my EPUB, the message has been received, a ship has been informed, and it's now been steaming towards me for 10 hours. It's doing 10 knots. Maybe it's going fast because it you know, thinks it might actually save me. So it's done. Uh, it could have done 180 miles to get to me. Well, that's that's that sounds good, right? 180 miles, like most things could get to you in 15 hours. Well, if it's water temperature is less than 50 Fahrenheit, you haven't got enough time to live unless you've got some kind of extra protection. And if you don't have the ability to resist cold water, you've not got a little bit of training, a little bit of equipment, it doesn't matter if it's 12, 14, 16, 18, 20 Celsius water, 60 Fahrenheit, 70 nearly Fahrenheit water, you're still going to be dead before it gets to you. So, yeah, I guess if that's what we take from this, then that might be a strong, uh, strong final point um, I guess it rounds out with what it says here. What are the uh, symptoms of hypothermia? Um, intense shivering may stop as muscles become cramped and rigid. Speech will become slurred. Nausea will set in and behavior will become irrational. Similar symptoms to being drunk. That's once that body temperature starts to drop and the brain's chemistry is not working as well. 
the casualty will slip into unconsciousness, increasing the chances of drowning, heart and breathing rates decrease, and the pupils will dilate. Heart failure is possible when body temperature drops below 30 Fahrenheit, uh, sorry, 30 Celsius, which is 86 Fahrenheit. So it's kind of a bit of a miserable end to the thing here, isn't it? <laughs> How do we like pull ourselves up out of this? What can we do about it? Um, we've got to have those jack lines on the boat in a position where you cannot enter the water if a thing goes tight. If your tether is attached to it and you fall over the side and on your boat, the dimensions of everything mean that you can go over the rail and into the water, then uh, you need to do something about that. You need to have that centrally mounted. You need to have shorter clips on your jacket. You need to be out of the water if you're still attached to the boat. Um, if you... Uh, uh, think that there's a great likelihood that you're going to be exposed to cold water you need to have the correct clothing on um, which if you're staying on the deck and just getting sluiced and you know splashed with water then it's going to be thermals underneath and fleeces and all those things which uh, do not retain water and then allow you to dry out somewhat in between soakings allow maybe even for it to breathe out through your outer shell you need a waterproof layer you need gaskets on the the cuffs and the the uh, the, the, the lower part around your boot if not a, ga a gate around your boot um, you need to be set up for the the stuff you're going to be experiencing securely clipped to the boat and uh, in a position where um, something really quite extreme is going to have to happen for you to be uh, unexpectedly and irrationally exposed to, to cold temperatures. If that doesn't work out and you end up going into the water, um, you need to have a set of clothing on you that is going to be as optimal as possible. I guess that's the best thing we can say, that closures can be closed. You can keep some water there. You can go into the heat escape loss preventing position, that kind of tucked in position like you're holding a basketball in front of you with the knees up and try and get as much of your body out of the water. You can fill your boots with air and put them under your armpits. You can make sure that life jacket's topped up and everything possible to keep your chest, shoulders, neck and head out of the water. Um, you can make sure you don't get water into your mouth. We know that there's 1.5 liters uh, of water, just six cups of water is enough to kill you with seawater. You've got to stop from uh, inhaling that. We know that uh, you will be the loss of the diving reflex, so you may accidentally breathe when your mouth's underwater, which is quite likely because you're going to be hyperventilating. So having a piece of clothing on, having a little bit of knowledge about closing your mouth, closing your nose physically with your hand, and then um, no, having some training done, which is going to give you some ability psychologically and physically to hold back the effects of cold shock is absolutely crucial. And if you've done those things and you're in the water, even if it's quite cold water, um, you know, not crazy cold, you've probably got like the better part of, you know, a half a day or more in cold water in 50 degree Fahrenheit water um, to to wait for some kind of rescue and you need to stay as calm as possible and you need to keep your head obviously above the water all of which is facilitated by wearing your life jacket and wearing it properly so I think the thing that I'm going to take from this today is that I personally need to do something about this so maybe we can feature that a little bit on the podcast or on the uh, YouTube channel. I think that I have got into a habit having lived in the tropics of never going into cold water of um, relying too much on the fact of like well I used to be allergic to the cold and now it's kind of a, a problem for me and you know the reality is it's more than 20 years ago and I could toughen up. I live in Nova Scotia it's getting colder it's like ugh, it's almost almost perfect time to get into a new sequence of learning how to deal with cold water but just the thought of it just the thought of it petrifies me but um the reality is i just sailed from england to iceland on my own 
And I know for a fact I wasn't clipped on all the time. So I was exposed to a risk which I refused to take actions to mitigate, which then just comes down to, well, you know, how much do you care about your family? How much do you care about uh, coming back from these things? It's like, it's just a cut and dry decision, isn't it? I just have to learn how to do it. So yes, that is uh, chapter two continued on the RYA uh, Sea Survival Handbook. I'm in no way trying to move through this quickly. Um, and I think those people who uh, listen to this podcast know that. Um, I'd love to hear if you've had experiences of going into cold water and how that's affected you or any stories which you'd like to use to help uh, educate and teach other people. The more we share our mistakes and our learning, the wiser everyone becomes, the safer everyone becomes. Um, I will endeavor to have a cold shower tonight and see exactly how that feels. Like, <laughs> not good is the answer. Um, although I've got to say the boat's perfectly set up for it because it has no hot water. So having only cold water showers available, maybe I can just move my showering to the boat. Um, no, I'll just end up going back to wet wipe showers. Yeah. Okay. I see how that works. Right. I'll, I'll ignore that. I will attempt to have some cold showers. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? It would be interesting for the YouTube thing. Like just how awful going into cold water can be. And I'm complete, I'm worse than a child about this. Um, and then see how we can toughen up and how that might affect somebody in a, in a life or death situation. I will assess whether that's something I want to do. <laughs> that might be a bit out of a bit out of uh, my way going and freezing myself out like that. But I don't know if it helps people with getting safer. Like maybe I just have to do it now. I've thought of it. Damn it. Why did I choose this uh, <laughs> damn book? Um, we're going to continue with the book uh, on the next one of these podcasts. Um, it'll be continuing with methods to help prevent the onset of hypothermia, which is page 30. This, of course, is the RWA Sea Survival Handbook. We've been uh, led through this discussion with today and uh, it's available on Amazon and there is a link in the description for it. It comes directly from the RWA. It's written by Keith Cowell and I really hope that uh, reading it together like this and just noodling through the different uh, thoughts and, and outlines in this can maybe lead to us all feeling a bit safer at sea. That's always, of course, my ultimate objective with all this. So if you like this stuff, if you like to learn uh, as much as you can about seamanship, consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, where there's seamanship videos and more content there that's set to get much, much bigger in the next couple of months. Basically, I'm uh, moving away from doing all of the stuff that we've done previously with public enrollment on the boats. And we're going to be getting into content creation. We've got a big uh, scheduled diary of things we're going to be creating there. So that's very good if you do listen to the podcast or watch the YouTube channel. That's set to expand massively. And unfortunately, it's not going to be based on how much flesh we can show in the thumbnail or hint at in the title. It's going to be things that can actually make your boating better, make it safer and give you uh, the skills you need to, 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 to work through all those dreams you've got with your sailing, whatever it is you want to do. So wherever you are today listening to this, I hope you're warm and dry and uh, not freezing cold. I hope you're not listening to this on your um, MP3 player in the water as you're waiting for survival or something. Although, hold on, if you are, I hope that wherever you are, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.